1: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap.
2: Hello? I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, the Metric podcast. Skylines is coming to you this week from a sort of blasted heath somewhere out in the wilds of East London, where things have, have quite recently been on fire. And also, about two miles into to my walk, I have discovered that my boots are leaking. Anyway, today... I am walking the length of, of Epping Forest, or it's about 13 miles from, from Manor Park up to Epping itself, with a man who's quite literally written a book on this, Luke Turner. Hello, Luke, how are you doing?
3: All right, John, I'm all right, my feet are dry, thankfully, I feel sorry for you.
2: Okay, we're like two miles in, and I'm already being mocked, it's always, this is, <laughs> this is just fantastic. Anyway, let's start with the chapter and verse stuff. You've written a book, tell me about your book.
3: I've written a book called Out of the Woods, which is, came out earlier this year, and it's about Epping Forest, this place we are walking the length of today. And kind of my obsession with it, the history of the forest, and how that then related to emotional, mental collapse, sexuality, religion,
2: shame and depression. So you've kind of got like all human experience through the prism of, of some trees in, in East London.
3: Absolutely, because forests and human identity, modern human identity, I think are intrinsically linked, which is, is kind of what the, the book is about, the sense of who we are as people and what we see as forests. And the split between city and forest has a lot to do with our sense of human self.
2: So, OK, the first question is, why Epping Forest? I mean, I don't necessarily associate Epping Forest with, with you know, shagging. So how, how do you get from like Epping Forest to sexuality and so on?
3: Well, there is a uh, local name, that it, they call it Effing Forest. That's quite in common parlance around these parts. Uh, and a lot of it goes on, but maybe we'll come to that later. I just get very obsessed with Epping Forest just because my family are from here. We're, we're on Wanstead Flats now. My dad used to teach football and referee football on Wanstead Flats when he was young. My grandparents, Ashes... Are in City of London Cemetery, which is about half a mile that way. And actually, a City of London Cemetery was something was a place that was basically saved the forest through a very complicated legal process, which we'll talk about later. And then my family lived in Loughton and Thayden Boys, and a lot of my ancestors are buried at High Beach Church. And the book was kind of it started off being like a history of the forest, which no one had written one for a long time, not since the 50s. And a look at the environmental history, social history, because it's it was a very radical place lots of very strange things have happened here but also a kind of look into my family history as well and then it sort of evolved in the process of writing it to become more of a personal story where I was able to connect all these things around sexuality and ideas what's natural behavior and what isn't with how we perceive of nature and so on and part of it was written I have a slight frustration with a lot of Nature writing, nature art, of it being twee and sentimental and always puts people in opposition to nature, that nature is outside of us. And I think Epping Forest is an amazing way of understanding that we're very much part of nature and that the urban and, and, and supposedly wild are not as different as we often like to think.
2: I mean, that's, that's an obvious question. Like, is this a natural landscape? Because you tend to think you know, it's a forest surrounded by bits of city, you, you, you maybe sort of assume that the forest is is what was here before. Is that true, or was this created in some way? It's completely
3: man, human-made. That's what's so amazing about the forest. We, like you say, you come into—I mean, maybe not this bit because it looks like grassland, but it's still kind of heathland with lots of gorse and things like that though the course around here is just these blackened things and hawthorn because it all got burnt but yeah Epping Forest was a heavily managed landscape when we go further up north in the forest we'll probably talk a bit about pollards uh, which was you know the process of managing trees for firewood for London so Epping Forest is entirely shaped by the people of London and the presence of London and I love that about it it's not wild it's not Nature, as we see it as something that humans have, have kind of sit on the edge of, but has always been here and is very old, this landscape is entirely created by
2: humans and, and I think that 's beautiful so let 's do a sort of bit of a gazette here like we're on we 're on a bit called Wanted Flats now which uh, my family also kind of hail from this bit of the world. Um, my mother once told me that growing up, like she pointed to some blocks of flats, and, some, <laughs> and growing up she said, like, oh, when I was a kid, I thought those were wanted Flats, and that confused me age 10 because I still thought they were wanted Flats. But wanted Flats is actually the name of this sort of, like, heafy bit, with sort of like grassland with few scattered trees. But as we, as we go on, we're going to get more into a more properly wooded area that looks more like you imagine a forest wood. I think it's also worth saying that it's kind of a long, thin strip, isn't it? epping forest it's it's never more than a mile or two wide yeah but it goes on for about 13 miles end-to-end. End. So we're never going to be that far from civilization. But, but it is going to feel quite rural in places. It's also, um, just for those of you, I know not everyone that listens to this podcast comes from this fine city, if, if if you're kind of vaguely aware of London, but you don't know the geography, basically we're at the eastern end of the central line, which is the red line that pokes out to the northeast, so you know where we are now. We should probably, we've got quite a few miles to go, we yeah. should probably get going. So Yeah,
3: and uh, John seemed quite nervous about being in the forest at, at at night on Twitter when we were discussing this so we, we probably need to get cracking otherwise, by well, the time we get to the, the bit that feels actually very wild and is a bit more wild, it will be dark and it's not
2: particularly nice being in the forest at night. I'd stopped feeling nervous until you said that and now I suddenly feel nervous again so, yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's get our skates on, shall we? <whistles> All right, so it's about two o'clock. We're in um, Chingford, which is on the northeastern fringe of of the built up area. Really, we've just stopped for lunch. We've had a weird beef roll thing that was not really what we were expecting. Which is not an interesting story. It was like a weird pie thing. Yeah. Why would you honest. call a roll a, well, a pie? A roll. I don't get it. Anyway, that's not a very interesting anecdote, is it? We're now sat outside looking at some cows, and we're going to talk about you know why, why is there a forest here? What's the what's the backstory? So, so give us give us the history.
3: So So we are sat on a slight hill looking over a plain, Chingford Plain, a very open area uh, with some cows grazing on it. Behind us is Queen Elizabeth's Hunting Lodge. It's called a very strange Tudor tower of three storeys with windows all around it. And behind that is Whitehall Plain, which is a beautiful open area with some very large, strange-looking oak trees in it. Now, this is actually the very kind of a typical surviving ancient woodland epping forest landscape forest doesn't really mean a place with trees at all forest is more about forest laws and a landscape that was hugely integrated in class power structures and rights and so on there was a forest charter in the 13th century which some historians say was more important than the magna carta because it actually dealt with the rights of ordinary people rather than the kind of the baronial class and the forest charter and the forest laws apply to epping forest
2: there's a couple of things i want to pick up on there firstly why is it called epping forest because epping is at one end of it at the moment is there is there an interesting story there or is it just like
3: Um, weirdly it was once called waltham forest the royal forest of essex waltham forest because it was owned for a while, by the monks of Wolfenham Abbey, and then it just gradually became Epping Forest, I think, as far as I know. It's not a particularly interesting story, no.
2: Okay, well, you know, not, not particularly interesting stories is what people do listen to this podcast for, really. <laughs> the other question I had is you said ancient woodland. Yes. You also said earlier it's a man made landscape. Yeah. So unpack that for us. Like, how is it ancient? What does ancient woodland mean? Um, who made it and why?
3: So there's always the belief that if you see a woodland, it's been there for ages and the reason it's there is because it's been there since the beginning of time and humans haven't cut it down. And that's not really true at all. There is no ancient woodland as in primeval woodland as in untouched by people woodland in the entirety of England. All of the woodland in England has been managed, manipulated, exploited by humans, and often that exploitation is a beneficial relationship between humans and landscape. So the pollen records suggest that a 1,000 years ago, Epping Forest was a kind of a monoculture, almost 90%, over 90%, small-leaf lime trees. Now, there aren't any small-leaf lime trees anywhere where we can see today. What we see is hornbeam, beech, oak trees primarily. And so humans uh, had an impact. They, they got rid of the small-leaf lime trees and grew or encouraged trees that were more useful to them. And those trees were heavily harvested by a process called pollarding, and we'll see some amazing pollards later on. But you cut a tree above head height when it's quite young, so you basically just don't stick. But trees are resilient things, it will just keep sending out new growth. 12, 13 years later, you come back, the trunk's thickened, there's loads of branches. You can cut all them off, use them for firewood, particularly for baker's ovens, also building material, fencing, stuff like that. Epping Forest's beech and hornbeam were particularly good firewood and building materials. So as London got bigger and bigger, it wanted more and more wood, and Epping Forest was an ideal place to harvest that wood. So this landscape evolved to supply the needs of London. And meanwhile, the forest wasn't dense overhead. It was like what I talked about, Whitehall Plain. It was quite open, or Chingford Plain, as we see now, because people, the commoners, under the ancient forest laws, they had the right to graze their cattle and to let their pigs root around uh, the right of panage, that was called. Pigs would eat the beech nuts and the acorns. And that kept down new growth as well. So you ended up with this very open landscape of heathland, grassland, a lot of heather, A lot of light came in, so there was a lot of wildflowers. It was a very biodiverse landscape in which people were part of this incredible ecosystem. We weren't separate from nature. We were working with the forest landscape to get wood, to to fuel London, to feed London... Uh, and cattle for milk and pigs for meat and so on. So it was this as much of an industrial landscape as you can get without industry. Though of course there'd have been a lot of charcoal burners in the woods, creating charcoal for forges and industrial works on the edge of London as well. So it was a very intensively managed landscape, and you wouldn't necessarily think that when you look at woodland today. We don't understand these histories most of the time. I never knew about any of this till I started researching the forest.
2: I think we do tend to think of like you know urban and rural farmland. Particularly in, as in opposition to each other now. Yeah. Whereas actually they're kind of part of the same system. Like the city is the place to which the products of that farmland will go for sale and, and passing on to the next person, but also the city can't exist without that. It's a symbiotic relationship, I think. Exactly, and in the history of
3: the forest, it was the corporation of London, the city of London, that saved the forest in the 19th century. The king's desire to hunt, or the royal desire to hunt, had kind of waned, the land had been flogged off to local land, uh, lords and you know, rich businessmen, and they were starting to cut the forest down. And there was a, a radical movement, led largely by the working-class people of East London, To save the forest. We'll go to a place near where a family of a man called Thomas Willingale lived and he asserted his right to lop the trees. In November, in the mid-19th century, he went up and lopped a tree and he got arrested for it because the forest was going to be felled. And that kick-started the campaign to save Epping Forest. It It was instigated by very much the poorest people of East London. You couldn't really get elected as an MP in East London in the mid-19th century without supporting the saving of Epping Forest. Because all the people who lived in London, within a couple of generations, they'd been rural dwellers themselves. The countryside or woods meant a lot to them. It's where their ancestors earned their living, Uh, as mine did out in Billericay, and then they moved into East Ham. And so I think for people in the 19th century, the blurring between their increasingly urban, very packed living conditions and the forest wasn't that marked. they missed the forest so they came up here in huge
2: numbers so was this a leisure environment
3: well that's the interesting thing is that when the t- train arrived at Chingford station which is about 200 yards away behind us it was an instant route for people to come out from Bethnal Green from the east end where there was no green whatsoever out here for leisure times now when the City of London saved the forest, the intent was that people would come here and kind of better themselves. We're actually, we just had lunch in Butler's Retreat. The retreats were all over the forest, and there were places where you could have tea, and the Salvation Army Band would be there, and it was a very wholesome spot where you would get your non-boozy refreshment before doing a nice walk in the forest. But the East Enders didn't really kind of follow those rules necessarily. On the May Day Fairs, 100,000 people would come up here to the Chingford Plain in front of us, and just pack it out. There was absolute chaos. There was everyone would get absolutely drunk. There were fights. All local factions would do each other in. There was a lot of sneaking off into the woods for sex. There was a lot of prostitution. It was a really chaotic, very city-focused. The the, the kind of the the working people of the East End really came here to let off steam in a really exciting way. And when I look out now and I say, oh look, there's pretty much all you get around Chingford a lot of the time, particularly on a Friday afternoon, it's dog walkers. I sort of miss this intensely bawdy atmosphere that used to exist in Epping Forest back in the day.
2: Well, I'm sorry I'm letting you down on that front, really. (laughs) You mentioned the Corporation of London. That's, for those who don't know, it's a sort of weird hybrid body where it is sort of corporation, but it's also the council for the City of London. It runs not just Epping Forest, but other open spaces like Hampstead Heath. It's also a very rich body. Do you want to tell us the story of how that came to be involved?
3: Yeah, it's a very long story that I will try and whittle down as much as I can. So the forest was in danger of being cut down and enclosed and done away with. There was this big campaign to try and save it, that led to the formation of the Commons Preservation Committee Society, sorry, who were kind of big movement to put pressure on to save the forest, that actually kind of led to the National Trust and things like that, so kind of a lot of British conservation movements come from Epping Forest, which I think is very interesting, but eventually Corporation London thought they ought to do something with all this public pressure, and they thought I think for the good of the people who lived in the city, they wanted to, to do this, and they had ancient interests in the old hunting and things like that and they, for a very convoluted and very long legal process, managed to acquire land that was forest land to build the city of London Cemetery, which we kind of walked near earlier it 's a cemetery, it's still still used by grandparents funerals, were both there. If you grew up in east london, probably you 've had been to funerals there it 's a very big cemetery. And the Corporation London built that in the 19th century because all the churchyards in the city were disgusting and the, bo- the bodies were popping out of the ground, polluting the water supplies. It was very unhygienic. So they needed a new cemetery. They bought this area of land which had been part of Epping Forest. And because they were landowners in the forest, the forest laws they could legally prove applied to them. So that meant they had rights over the entire forest because the, the forest laws were applicable not just in that little bit of forest down in the south, but all the way up to here, to Chingford, all the way out into Essex. So they could say, ah, we are commoners of the forest, we, the Corporation of London, therefore we have rights over the land to graze, therefore the forest laws that say you shall not put up fences or enclose the land or fell the trees have never been repealed, so they still apply. So they used these very ancient forest laws and a lot of very canny legal manoeuvring to say that all the enclosures in the forest were illegal and had to be stopped. And after that had happened, they bought the land of Epping Forest for all the landlords and landowners. They paid them off using the metage tax, which was the tax levied on all grain and coal coming into the London area. So they bought the forest, essentially. And then the 1878 Epping Forest Act was passed, which declared it saved for the people of London forever. So technically... Nothing can be done. Much as it probably is a huge drain on Corporation of London resources now and there's no more métage tax, they're not allowed to they'd have a fight on their hands if they ever tried to kind of go, actually let's chip this off.
2: I don't think the Corporation of London is is short of resources to be honest. And also like even even I with my with my sort of health building. Extremism do not think we should be touching Epping Forest. I mean, it's, it's a very important, uh, it's a very important, very beautiful landscape, and it's rather lovely. Unlike a lot of the green belt, which we we should we should concrete. We should probably be getting moving again, yeah. partly because we're we're only about halfway. We've got about seven or eight miles still to go. I've fallen over on my backside in the mud twice already, so I don't know how long that's going to take us. And we're slightly worried about losing the light. But just before we do, I want to ask one more question, which is, at the moment. The forest I said it's very long and narrow. It's about 13 miles end to end, but except in a couple of places, it's never more than about a mile across, really. Was that always the case, or did it once cover a much larger area?
3: I mean, in the dim mists of time, it would have been huge, really. It would have encompassed Hainault Forest, which is on the other side of the River Roding, the other side of the M11, now is the most kind of relevant geographical recognisable landscape. And that was a massive forest, Hainault Forest. And that was felled in six weeks in the 19th century. All the new steam saws and all this stuff came in, which is partly why they went, oh, no, we need to save Epping Forest. If it can happen to Hainault, an entire place felled in six weeks.
2: wouldn't mind but they still haven't built houses on most of that space it's still open space that's near where i grew up it's this is one of the bits i get really angry about because it is right next to the tube it is open space it is not very pretty we are not using it for houses what the fuck
3: yeah, that's true, isn't it? They kind of felled it and didn't really do much with it. And they, I think there's definitely reason argument for, for building on some of that land. And you know, the remaining little nub of Haynott Forest is actually very beautiful, it's really worth going to. Though my dad who grew up around there was when I said I was going out to Haynott once, he was like, Why do you want to go out there? Be careful.
2: Which yeah, <laughs> it's not a great environment. But did it I mean did it how did it extend to in the other direction? Did it go all the way to the River Lee? Uh,
3: yeah, I mean it went all the way down through Walthamstow to the River Lee. And what's fascinating about the River Lee is that is a very, very ancient boundary. Now it's the boundary between Wolfen Forest and Tottenham. It was actually the boundary between... um, Uh, Essex
2: and Middlesex, was not
3: it? Essex and Middlesex, but even before that, I think that was where the Danegeld ended. So it's a very, very ancient boundary uh, where England kind of stopped being England for a long time, is the River Lee?
2: yeah I mean I think if you go about far enough the ancient kingdom of Essex also included what is now Middlesex and Surrey but that was quite a long like even later yeah. in the history of that kingdom it was just modern Essex and the, the Londony bit we should probably get going because I'm slightly concerned about my ability to, to stay upright at this point <laughs> so let's see if I can like survive without falling flat on my backside again it's
3: all, it's all big paths it's all big paths for now on John. yeah it's been, be quite, it's
2: been quite muddy I'm not, just, I'm not just like I haven't got a condition here it's just it's really not good going let's get on with it OK, so we are about 11 miles into our walk. And I'm going to be honest, the strain is starting to show ever so slightly. I'm caked in mud at this point. We are currently sat on a, a rather gnarled tree trunk next to Loughton Camp, which is an Iron Age fort, which kind of led me to expect something more, more fort-like, which is weird because the Iron Age is quite a long time ago now, if I'm honest. But it's really just some sort of bumps. It was the site of uh, some kind of military encampment before the Romans got here. Luke, what are we looking at?
3: It is a enclosure. I think you can see some fairly strong evidence of earthworks here, John. I don't know what you were expecting. Spikes and... Bumps. There are bumps. <laughs> there are, there's a very circular array of bumps. So this was an uh, Iron Age encampment for whatever you want to call it in the middle of the forest. Is two. We'll walk past another in a bit. When I was a kid, there was always the legend that Queen Boudicca had her final battle up here between these two camps, after which she killed herself and her daughters in the Roding brook. This is nonsense, there's no evidence of a battle whatsoever, but it is a very ancient structure that shows this landscape has been used by people for a long time. And what I find interesting, now we look around and there's a lot of incredible, stunning, very old, giant beach pollards all over the place but presumably you wouldn't build some sort of fort without much of a view. So perhaps when this was built in the Iron Age, this landscape had actually already been completely cleared of trees. I'm not sure whether we can ever prove that, but it really shows that this has been a very dynamic sort of place. And this, I kind of like it here because, you know, the Boudica legends here, Effing Forest is a place that is full of odd legends, mysteries and so on. It was thought that Dick Turpin, the highwayman, used to hide out in this in a cave in this Iron Age fort, or the other one. He didn't. Where his cave was was actually absolutely, absolutely under a pub called the Dick Turpin, which is no longer there. But he was one of the highwaymen who was very busy in Epping Forest. It was a very dangerous place in the... Well, right up until the 18th, 19th century, really, to travel at night. There were a lot of robbers, because it was near London. You could pop out on your horse, nick someone's money, kill them be back in London in the anonymity of the city before dawn and no one would know any difference. And we actually crossed a very busy, big main road that goes right through the forest called Epping New Road. And that was expressly built to counter the threat of highwaymen, which is a shame, really, because it's a big, ugly road um, that's got too much traffic
2: on it and kind of spoils the middle of the forest a little bit. You say this, but like, given that we're probably about an hour away from losing the light, I'm quite glad that the highwaymen are are not not still noticeably in evidence I want to ask about a couple of things let's talk about cows you were saying some stuff about cows yes because there are a few still wandering around when I was a kid there were still wild cows in, in, in Wanstead but they've stopped that now but, you know, within living memory, there were still cows wandering around fairly suburban bits of London. But you were saying they've got a system to kind of keep them in certain areas.
3: Yeah, so they've got a, a new herd of cows, long cattle, very docile, lovely animals to keep. Basically, they're trying to keep down all the growth to stop the forest becoming choked and dark and a bad ecosystem. Again, this idea that if nature is, quote, unquote, better, if you leave it to do what it wants is not necessarily always the case when it comes to biodiversity so there's a big herd of cows and they wander around and as john was saying there used to be a lot of cows here they caused havoc in traffic jams and also trampling people's gardens so they come the very clever wheeze which is you they buried all cable in a trench all the way in big areas of the forest in a circle and then the cows wear these uh, sort of neck bracelets and they make noises and things to put them off when they go near the wire so it's an invisible fence because the Epping Forest Act says you are not allowed to put up a fence on the forest so they have to get around it by having an invisible fence. And I think there should be a lot more cows in the forest and clear away a lot of this holly. Um, Where we're looking now, the the view is through the ancient, very open woodland pasture landscape that would have been here in the Iron Age fort. It's very clogged up by holly. And holly's quite a nasty plant. Not much grows around it. It's very vigorous. It loves shade. And 100 years ago, there was no holly in Epping Forest. It was a very rare species. I've even read that exact line. It was a very rare species. And now it's come up. So it really shows you how it's a very dynamic, changing place. And where we are now, there's all these very ancient pollards. So when you stop pollarding a tree, it will grow up and keep growing. So you've got these initial trunks, the old, old trunk, the the bowl of the pollard. And then out of that grows these huge branches that like trees within themselves. And eventually they rot and all collapse and the tree dies if you don't keep pollarding them. So in a hundred years, this landscape won't exist. It'll probably be, who knows, lots of holly, silver birch, things like that. As the police helicopter off to its base in Chingford, it's
2: doing wonders for our sound quality. Oh, uh, well, there it goes. Yeah, it's quite low, that. While we're talking about, like, uh, timescales and things, how old are the trees here? Like, how long will the tree live?
3: Well... That's another interesting thing about pollarding or the practice of coppicing, which is the same idea, but you cut it on the ground. It is very good for a tree. It prolongs its life. So a standard beech tree that just grows up, 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 and up, and up, and then falls over might be two, 300 years old. Some of the trees in the forest that were, were coppiced and pollarded thought to be at least 800 years old. There are even ones called coppards, which is where initially they were coppiced on the ground, so they were cut on the ground, then grew up, and then once they'd grown up, they were pollarded later on, once the, when, when there was grazing going on. And they're the really old ones. And sometimes you, you see one of these things, with all these gnarled roots covering the ground, and you realise it's actually an organism that covers a huge area of the forest. It's just been cut and cut again. And who know, you just can't really get an, a sense of how old they are. The traditional ways of working it out don't exist. So I find that kind of mind-blowing, that there's, there's living beings, and increasingly some say sentient beings, who have which have means of communication, feeling pain, warning and so on in this forest that are are that old. It's incredible, really.
2: The idea that trees can feel pain doesn't really fit very neatly with the idea of pollarding. I'm kind of having difficulty meshing those two together.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, some people say you shouldn't cut trees and they feel... I'm not sure about the pain theory and that's a very human construct of Mm. of pain. But there are some people who, who do argue this.
2: But yeah, eight hundred years is a hell of a long time. I was just working out in my head, like twelve nineteen, you're only four years after Magna Carta. You're yeah. only, I think, thirty years after the accession of Richard the Lionheart, which is you know you know this thing about what time immemorial actually means? No, I don't. You said sort there's of like year time immemorial, you think it means forever. It doesn't. It relates to a specific date which I think, I mean, I'm sure people will write in, if I'm getting this wrong, it's certainly in the 12th century. I think it's 1189, the accession of Richard the Lionheart. So when you see something that's been true since time immemorial, I mean, that's about the point they started paying attention to this stuff. Oh, wow. So it's, yeah, a lot of legal conventions It will just date beyond that. But that's 800 years is, that's, a, that's quite a long time. Some of these trees are pretty old. Just before we move on, you also, um, you were telling a story a few minutes ago about a hermit. Do you want to give us the hermit story?
3: Yeah, this was a, a man who lived in the forest a bit further north of here. I think he used to occasionally spend the night here because he liked... He said Queen Boudicca had been there, he told me. But he was a man who became a, a really central character in Out of the Woods. And he lived north of Lon- London and he was uh, going to be evicted from his house. He hadn't paid his rent. He had bipolar disorder. He was, he was like in his 60s and he tried to kill himself and he couldn't do it. And he thought if he walked into the forest his medication would wear off and he'd be able to to do himself in. And he started walking and then he ended up in, in the Lichgate of Thaden Boys Church and he got shit kicked out of him by some Essex drunks. So he came further into the forest, found a tent and set up camp and then gradually the desire to die left him. And he became very connected to the forest and he, he used to walk past my uncle's house every day to go to Faden to get his a copy of The Independent and a coffee from Costa and uh, to do the rounds and see his, his friends. Uh, in the village, and he was a real character. And you know, one of the reasons I wrote Out of the Woods is to question this idea of the nature cure, what I think of as nature higgy, you know, all lovely nature, isn't it nice? Go forest bathing, it's Japanese, it must, it must be good for you. Uh, you know, here's a woodcut print of a tree, look at it, and all your, your depression will go away. And when I was writing the book, I was very depressed, I was coming into the forest and I was finding it oppressive and horrible, and um, not that at all. And I wanted to write about how nature and mental health is incredibly complicated, and we can't. see it as this means of of self-cure and and, and hashtag hashtag wellness. And he was interesting because he'd come into the forest and it had genuinely saved his life. And he lived just north of here and used to perambulate around and he he looked incredible. He had a huge white beard and flowing white hair and uh, was a wonderful human being.
2: What happened to him?
3: He eventually left the forest. He had said... Basically, he'd have to take me out dead. But after he had really bad arthritis and he couldn't really move around very much, and in the end, he went into a home. But he still pops back; he still comes back. Oh,
2: so it's, it's, it's a happy ending, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. It worked; it cured him, and now he's now he's off. You know.
2: We should probably get moving. I think we've probably got about an hour, about of, an hour, good hour light of light left. There's,
3: there's some people setting up the camp over there it's in the middle brave. of uh, yeah. in the middle of the Iron Age camp, which is. I've, it's, would that be an eerie? Ple- would you like to stay here overnight? I God? think I'm
2: all right. Maybe they're going to do some <laughs> kind of ritual or something. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I've like, smeared heard, in heard this is horses' blood and the, naked. Yeah, like so, yeah,
3: I heard this is quite a, a, an interesting place to have special mushrooms.
2: It is a go. bit like you, it is a bit sort of hallucinatory at times, isn't it? Like, it, it,
3: it is. I mean, the, the, the thing with the pollarding is I, we're sitting on a particularly weird gnarly bit of tree and the process of cutting them when they grow out and the welts do tend to grow into these very anthropomorphic shapes yeah. and eyes and and quite crude shapes like very genitaliary shapes so you, you do have a real sense when you're walking through the forest at night that it is looking at you that it that it's yeah. observing you remember the bit within the willows when the when was it mole Goes into the the wild wood at night, and there's it, yeah. oh, and there's all the weasels and stoats' eyes looking at him. You you can sort of feel like the adult version of that, mm. which is not actually much fun, to be
2: honest. No more than once on this walk, I've kind of seen what I thought was a person. that is just a bit of tree. Exactly. Although there was another point where, like you pointed out, some stone that uh, I think a relative of yours had been involved with at some point, and I had to stop you halfway through and check that I wasn't <laughs> was, imagining there was a man it was, there.
3: <laughs> it was a particularly odd an odd an odd man. That was yeah, yeah. the stone for Gypsy Smith, who was yeah. a Romany and. uh ended up becoming a Methodist preacher who was born in the middle of the forest. And none of these oh. incredible characters that used to be here and be around
2: here. But yeah, you were telling me this story and there was a guy that looked, I think he might have been a rabbi or something, standing there with a hat and beard looking at a newspaper and I was like, am I, am I seeing that? You do get, I mean, I,
3: on, a, on a horrible walk near here, which I was telling you about when I hallucinated seeing a man about to hang himself, I'd also seen somebody sat under this very notable tree called Grimston's Oak and he was reading a book but he was wearing a balaclava. He was like, why and that started off my brain freaking out that like, why was there a man sitting underneath Grimston's oak reading a book with a balaclava on? Why why would you do that?
2: Sorry, was this a real man or was this... I
3: think yeah, that was a real man. Right. But then well, it was set, cold day, set me up well, no, it was middle of it was a very hot spring evening. Oh, okay. Well that's just weird then. <laughs> yeah, it's just weird. Alright. So maybe we should leave these camping people to it. Right, let them break yes, break yeah. the forest bylaws
2: yes. by themselves. All right. Yeah, let's go on. Let's get on with it. and that's it we're done about 14 miles in the end we lost the light at the end so we were trooping for a slightly scary set of woods in the dark and came out on like some empty field above the m25 but we did it we walked the length of epping forest how are you feeling i'm
3: quite tired but i've had a pint and a half because i've drunk them really quickly and now i feel tired but also great
2: yeah, there's something satisfying about like setting out to doing something and then just doing it, isn't
3: there? And absolutely doing it, though. I am disgusted with Mister Porky's pork scratchings' uh, new portion control system, which has resulted in a very small, and disappointing bag of pork scratchings. But you know, that's an aside.
2: I don't think I've seen you this animated about anything in okay. Let's do the history in quite a long time, actually, because <laughs> that because <laughs> that's that's I'm yeah excellent segues on this podcast. But what I didn't say at the beginning is that like, we know each other because we worked together more than fifteen years ago now 16 and a half years ago at a company called hot courses that was very unfamous at the time but was owned by a guy who's since become kind of important because it was the uh, the business that made the fortune for jeremy hunt britain's erstwhile foreign secretary and you have since written uh, a seminal piece on what it was like to work for jeremy hunt haven't you <laughs>
3: Seminal, that's good. It's become seminal. Yeah, it was a funny time. I'm convinced that because I obviously like John out of all the people we work with at Hot Courses. Though there were many nice people there. I remember John very well. And he says he was only there for three months. I was there, unfortunately, for three years at um, Hot Courses, Jeremy Hunt's publishing company. It was an experience much like the tyres grinding tarmac that are going past now. And, it, yeah, it was, it was a very horrible, dark, twisted uh, ruinous time of my life, to
2: be honest. It's genuinely like I was only there four months. Oh. I got there, oh, yeah, on the on the day I arrived. I the I side of the need to get out, it was it was pretty horrible. It's still the worst job I've ever had. It was just absolutely soul crushing. I don't know how you stuck it for four years. Three, three years, years. Three years. But like, what was what, what was so what was so bad about it? <laughs> What was so
3: bad about working at Jeremy Hunt's Hot Courses? Well, it was a job sold as being this sort of like amazing thing. You'd be working in education and writing about education. It was people who all cared about education. It was a young workforce and everything. And the money was a little bit rubbish, like 10 grand or 11 grand or whatever it was. But, you know, it's first job out of university. Couldn't do internships, couldn't afford it, all of that work experience stuff. So I thought I'd do it. And then I had on uh, my first day in this horrible sort of one of those offices where the carpet's very nylon and there's a, there's a tea stains and the, and the lights hum and there's just this clattering of slightly old-fashioned keyboards everywhere and everyone, everyone's quiet yeah. and and i remember thinking i can't stay here this job is a data entry job and there's this these two idiots running it who are just really posh and one of them's got this wobbly head that grins <laughs> at you every now and again that was jeremy Hunt. And, and unfortunately, I stayed there for another three years somehow. I don't know, but it was, it was a soul-crushing job. They, they expected you to work very hard and be very grateful for having this shit job. And, you know, you never got thanked. You had to work till really, really late at night with no overtime. And if you were at five minutes late, you'd have to stay in Hammersmith working on a publication till like 11 at night, 12 midnight sometimes. Last tube home. And if you weren't in at nine in the morning, That was it, you got a bollocking. And at one time, though, we have to thank us for working really hard on some uh, listing signal we've put out. We got a hot horse's mouse mat as a present
2: that's the thing that really stays with me I must say it's because like, there was a big run up to that like they said there's a whole speech thanking the team responsible and then it felt like it was a proper insult wasn't it it was like, pro- it was like thanks for all your hard work we're now going to spit in your face
3: yeah
2: yeah. but I mean you wrote that that piece for uh, for the quietest which we'll, we'll get on to in a moment you wrote that piece in 2011 I think in the middle of the uh, the stuff around the, what was it, the phone hacking scandal story, yeah. when Jeremy Hunt was culture secretary and I remember you concluding that piece you know he should do the decent thing and resign. He did not resign. He stayed as Culture Secretary. He later became Health Secretary and then Foreign Secretary and was a candidate to be our Prime Minister. So he has kind of won, hasn't he? Yeah,
3: he he, he absolutely has won. And, you know, I don't really... It's a long time ago now. I don't really bear him as a human being, personal ill will. I do think he is an absolute emblem of why Britain is is in the state it's in because he has got everywhere not through ability not through
2: intelligence, through plausibility. I think he's kind of like that kind of like well-spoken. He looks the part. He looks, and at... he's not a te- he's not a terrible human but being. I think that's compared it. to him, but he just yeah. like he's.
3: But I think plausibility is also quite generous because his family background meant that he, you know, his he took over Virginia Bottomley's seat, and there she, her she was a family friend. You know, it's almost you know patronage really. And then I don't know. I've always found some of the stuff around Peter Bottomley's business interests and Jeremy Hunt intriguing put it like that that's, that's probably as far as we can go <laughs> on, a,
2: on a podcast with no legal budget but you did eventually leave and as I, I said you're now, uh, you're now one of the people running a thing called The Quietest do you want to tell us about that yeah The Quietest
3: is a music culture and all the things that surround music culture because I don't think they exist in some rarefied vacuum so we cover politics and, and things like that a website that I've been doing with a, a good friend called John Doran for I think we came up with the idea 12 years ago now And it's basically, we just want to celebrate culture that is not given oxygen by a mainstream that is very algorithm-dominated. Spotify, Apple, these companies that feed you stuff they think you're going to like, rather than stuff that might blow your mind. And yeah, that's been the kind of... I think the Hot Courses experience, actually, was quite formative, because it was three years of... Doing that job and just being desperately unhappy and borderline alcoholism and all sorts of other issues that are a bit more fruity that I write about in Out of the Woods kind of made me realise that actually you're much better off trying to fight your own corner and do things independently and not have bosses and not have to get to work at nine o'clock in the morning and not the great reward in a year being a mouse mat. So the Quietus is a very sort of independent-minded music publication, basically.
2: And like you've been doing it for more than ten years, that's pretty that's pretty impressive going for like an independent publication in this
3: climate, really. Yeah, I think that's because me and John are a bit mentally ill, and you know we well, really. We are now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I think we were when we started. To be honest, we started the Quietus when John had, John was giving up drinking in having a sort of fairy serious had to give up drinking. Way I was getting divorced. Neither of us had writing careers. Nobody would employ us. We just didn't kind of. Fit in with what was wanted in terms of music writing and culture writing at the time, I suppose. Both were probably too opinionated. It's not always, weirdly enough, writing about music, which I think should be something that's incredibly subjective. Lots of people don't want you to be subjective, which seems really weird. They want you to have an objective view of whether something's good, which I think is is nonsense.
2: What does that even mean?
3: Yeah, exactly. Music is such a personal thing and such a direct thing that connects with real core emotions. You can't be objective about it. And I think it, the quiet has really saved both of us in in a funny sort of way. And that made us really determined to keep going. And we're both quite bloody-minded people, really. And the fact that people would say, oh, they're going to fail, made us determined to kind of keep going and succeed, really.
2: I think there's definitely a benefit to having a crap job or two early in your career, um, in that like I can think... I learnt as much from the jobs where I was working for magazines, where I just didn't like how things were done and, like, learning what I would do differently was kind of as valuable as, like, in the places where people actually taught me positive stuff, I think.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, the problem with the, the media is the wrong people get in charge in a lot of...
2: I'm working uh, on it,
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of places. And, I know, you do, you do have to... I think more well, things should be run out of passion and determination and look for stuff outside of the obvious and not go, oh, that's popular, therefore we'll cover it, or um, that's an obvious angle and everyone else is saying it, let's follow them. I mean, this is particularly sort of focused around music journalism, really, but there's a lot of consensus thinking, and I think it's a lot more interesting to go, what do you really like as a person? What do your writers really like? What are the readers actually going to be really pleased that you've introduced them to, rather than kind of talking about the same old people they've always read about?
2: There's sort of a difference in attitude between, like, the algorithmic approach of, like, we need to give people more of what they like, and, and the one that's like, actually, let's try and expose them to new things... And if you can get that right, which you won't the whole time, if you can get that right, that, the, the payoff is bigger, I think.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's an, it's interesting, because it's algorithms, but also that sort of conservative thinking when you get people who are commercially minded in charge of media outlets, when they're just thinking, oh, we need to give people what they want. We, we can't challenge them too much. And that's why the weekly music press ended, because they did that. They just kept saying, oh, we need to just give people white boy indie bands rather than being courageous and their circulations declined and they all vanished and what we try and do is that like we do an albums of the year list I'm putting mine together now hundred records and at first people are like no we've never heard of any of these records they're making it up you know there's, I've only heard of six records now every year people are like well there's a hundred albums I'm going to spend the next year listening to and this is great there's, there's just so much exciting culture out there and I believe that I think that bizarrely though there's no money in anything anymore Cultural, in, in many ways, or interesting left field cultural. This is one of the most fertile times I've ever known. It's certainly a lot better than the years of working at hot courses.
2: Last question: yeah. um, If people wanna if people wanna get hold of the book, just give us the details.
3: So it's called Out the Woods. It is available from all good independent bookshops and the bad website, but don't buy it on there. And the paperback is coming out on January, which will be a more reasonably priced option. Uh, so maybe wait till the paperback.
2: And there's all sorts of stuff about sex in there, which we didn't get into, really. We've been past a couple of dogging spots, which we didn't really talk about. <laughs> if, if if you don't know what dogging is, ask your mother. And, yeah, so, so yeah, go buy a book.
3: Yes. And, uh, yeah, it is getting dark, but we're not going to wander back in the forest and find all the uh, fruities. Yeah. Well, we're we're going go to the tube. We're gonna go find the tube, the tube and, yeah. and
2: get on with our lives. <laughs> yeah. Luke, thank you very much for taking a Friday to walk the length of the Forest with me.
3: Thanks, John. Thanks for having us. Cheers.
2: Been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, ACast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? you know it really helps people discover the show, and I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this the better really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.